Hi, friends. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. Today is going to look a little bit different, as you can already tell. Uh, I'm Mike Reasonweber. I'm joined here by friend Craig Backer. Now, Craig works as a research scientist, specifically in the field of artificial intelligence. Um, he's also one of our resident theologians and someone's, someone whose experience and knowledge I, I trust highly. And so, Craig, so glad to have you here today. We're going to do kind of an interview format as we talk about the mission of God. All right, sounds good. So uh, for those of you that haven't been with us recently, we've been in a series on the mission of God. And let me lay a little bit of the, of the backstory and Craig, then we'll dive in um, to today's subject. In the beginning, God created and what God creates, it is good. Humanity was to play a special role in this world and in the life of God. Adam and Eve got to walk with God in a pristine garden. In time, however, temptation won the day. In pursuit of power, knowledge, freedom, and who knows what else, humanity set out on its own path. So the remainder of the biblical narrative tells a story of a God on mission, a God in pursuit of restoring relationship with his beloved creation. In the Old Testament, we read of God's covenant with a man named Abraham, uh, whose descendants become the Israelite people, whom God promises, I will bless you that you will be a blessing to the nations, that through Israel, uh, all nations of the world would receive God's blessing. And though Israel did not always uh, live up to their end of covenant, God was very faithful in sending Jesus into the Jewish nation. And in him, a new era was ushered into this world. Jesus spoke of the mission of God in terms of the kingdom of God. Uh, and his prayer was, God, your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth. Now, after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the church began. Now, last week in our series, we talked about the first century church and the description that we see from the church from 33 AD, roughly to 75 or 80 AD, uh, the story of the letters and the story of the book of Acts. This week, Craig and I, we've We've bit off quite a bit, Craig, uh, because now we're going to try to cover from the year 100 to the year, you know, today. Uh, we've got a couple thousand years to cover today. Before we dive into the details of the conversation of church history and how it relates to the mission of God, um, let me ask this. Why is an understanding of church history important to us today? So I think that's a great place to start the conversation. Um, and I think there are a couple different answers to that question. Uh, so first of all, so that we can learn from past mistakes. Um, the church has done a lot of foolish and wicked things over the last 2000 years. And those who fail to learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. Um, so we want, we want to be able to learn from bad examples in the past, uh, but we also want to be able to learn from the good examples. You know, the church has done good things as well. Um, you know, what can someone like Francis of Assisi teach us about humility? Uh, what can Irenaeus teach us about the defense of orthodoxy? What can Desmond Tutu teach us about peacemaking? Um, when it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to being the church, we don't have to start from scratch. And we were never meant to. We were always meant to um, inhabit and, and live out this, uh, this particular history. So that's, that's one thing. Um, another thing to keep in mind is that, um, you know, it's not just that we don't have to start from scratch, but actually we never start from scratch. Um, and understanding history can help us to relativize and put into context our, our current history today. Um, you know, being able to do that helps us to take our individual stories as well as our story as the vine 
um, and put it in the middle of a whole bunch of other narratives that have already been going on. Um, a lot of what we just take for granted uh, is actually the product of uh, what you might call historical accidents, things that could have been different and actually have been different in other places and other times. Uh, for example, many of us rely on uh, common sense when we read scripture, but what counts as common sense varies a lot from place to place and across time, uh, which is one of the reasons why you get different interpretations of scripture. Um, or think about the vine. The vine is a non-denominational church. Um, that's not something that existed 500 years ago. Um, the way that we do church here in the Tri-Cities today is somewhat different from the way most Christians throughout history have done church. Um, and if we can understand the fact that we are historically situated in this particular place and time, and as a result of these different factors, that enables us to ask and answer the question, why do we do church this way? And maybe should we do it differently? Are there things we should tweak? Um, you can apply this to a whole host of different issues. I'm just picking this one particular issue. Um, but Yes, that's really helpful as we as we consider the why of it. So let me ask this. It's easy to look back at church history and talk about them, and they did that. To what extent, as we look at church history, are we looking at their story, and to what extent are we looking at our story? Well, I would always say that if you're a Christian, this is your story, whether you like it or not. Um, being Being Christian means being adopted into a particular family. Uh, and like other families, you don't get to choose who your family is. Um, you're kind of stuck with that. And so, yes, absolutely, this is this is our this is our story, not just their story. Mm -hmm. It's not easy for us to say that, uh, particularly in the very individual individualistic culture that we live in. Um, you know, we're not good at dealing with things that we don't choose for ourselves. But if you're a Christian, this story is something that you're stuck with. It's not something you get to choose for yourself. Um, another thing that is worth keeping in mind is that Jesus didn't leave behind a collection of writings that he penned himself that could just be passed out to various people. Uh, some people think that's what he ought to have done, but, well, that's another discussion. Um, what Jesus actually did, though, is he left behind a group of people who would carry on his work out of devotion to him. We call that group of people the church, and that group of people is now us, or we are a part of that group of people. Um, so yes, this is absolutely our story and not just their story. Very good. Thank you for that clarification. Okay, so um, we talked last week about the first century church and what we read in the biblical narrative. Now we're going to dive into the next couple thousand years, which tells the story of church history as recorded um, by the church and uh, other historical sources. So, Craig, I'm going to let you kind of carry this narrative. I'll jump in here and there, but let's try to run through a bit of an overview of the major developments in the story of church history. Right. So this is a very, very high level overview. Um, 2000 years of world history essentially is what we're covering in the next, you know, 15, 20 minutes. So uh, brace yourselves. Here we go. Uh, so starting with the early church, this is kind of the first couple centuries. Um, you have the church growing in numbers. Um, it's sometimes persecuted as as a political threat, actually, to to the Roman Empire. Uh, sometimes they're just kind of left alone. Uh, one thing that's really notable about the early church is how much better it treats women. 
than the surrounding pagan culture. Um, and again, as with so many things, I'm not going to go into all the details, but uh, feel free to come and find me later and ask me, and I'm happy to pontificate. Um, one of the big challenges for the church in that for those first couple of centuries is taking this essentially Jewish faith um, and trying to translate it into this Greek and Latin context. Um, in doing so, they wrestle with a bunch of early heresies, um, the question of whether or not to even keep the Old Testament, uh, whether to kind of slide into the private mysteries of Gnosticism, which was a kind of a, you could think of it as a variant of Christianity, but it's more complicated than that. Uh, but sliding off into that kind of private mysticism versus the, the public faith of the church. Um, also trying to understand what we now call the Trinity and, and understanding, you know, who Jesus was and what his relationship is to God and, and things like that. Um, so as the church does this, it spreads throughout um, the known world at the time uh, through Africa, Asia, Europe. Um, we tend to think of Europe of Christianity as a European thing for the first millennium or so, Europe was actually kind of a backwater. Uh, there were more Christians in what, Asia, what we now call Asia, than there were in Europe. Um, you have uh, Armenia, which is a, a you know Central Asian nation. They adopt Christianity before the Roman Empire does, and Armenian Christianity is still there. Uh, you get Christians in India. Uh, according to tradition, the Christian community there was founded by Doubting Thomas. Um, so, you know, Christianity was in India before the colonial empire, before any colonial empires were there. Um, Ethiopia adopted Christianity and it's still there. Um, so all Christians also in Africa before you have uh, European colonialism. Um, Christianity actually reached all the way to China. Um, and what you get is you get kind of three main branches of the church. You get kind of the Latin speaking churches in Western Europe. You get the Greek speaking churches. Um, if you're Greek familiar with, uh, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy, that's that group. They're kind of in Eastern Europe and uh, the Byzantine Empire at the time. Uh, and then you have the Syriac-speaking churches spread throughout Asia. Um, now, these churches, these are like the Coptic Church in, um, in Egypt, the Armenian Church, uh, Syrian Orthodox Church in the Middle East. They're there, and they actually end up being very numerous, but they get uh, decimated through various uh, Muslim and Mongol conquests, um, though those parts of the church are still there just in, in reduced numbers. Uh, focusing in on Europe, um, you have kind of the church spreading through the Roman Empire and beyond the Roman Empire to the, uh, the quote-unquote barbarians, you know, the Goths and the Visigoths and, and so on. Um, and Christianity is linked to the Roman Empire, but it actually survives the fall of the Roman Empire. And you see the rise of monasticism, um, you know, monks and nuns and the Desert Fathers and so on, um, as a response to um, Worldly Christianity is a response to the adoption of Christianity by uh, the state, by the Roman Empire at the time. Um, but through the fall of the Roman Empire, those monasteries actually become a way to preserve the literature and the learning of antiquity. Uh, now, as we move into the um, kind of the Middle Ages, what some people call the Dark Ages, um, although there's a lot of misconceptions about those, and I won't get into that, um, you tend to see three different ways that Christianity spreads in, in Europe at the time. Um, you have missionaries. Uh, particularly the Irish, actually, uh, once Christianity got there. Um, you have uh, conquest and forced conversion. So, you know, one Christian group conquers a non-Christian group and they say, become Christian or we'll kill you, which I guess has a strong motivating factor. Um, and then the third approach tends to be um, you had Christian princess. Usually it was a Christian princess marrying a pagan king and then that princess bringing, uh, bringing Christianity with her. 
Now, during this time, you still have the, the Latin-speaking church in the West, uh, what ends up becoming the Roman Catholic Church, and the, the Greek-speaking churches in the East kind of drifting farther and part, farther and farther apart. Uh, eventually, they uh, split in the, the Great Schism uh, of 1054, and this is a split over uh, doctrine, over church authority, and really kind of just the culmination of, you know, almost a thousand years of differences. Now, when we look at this period of history, we tend to think about the church and the state and the, how those things interact. And it's interesting that in Europe, you don't get a theocracy, um, but you don't have a sharp separation between church and state. And this is something that can be hard for us to grasp because it doesn't fit into uh, the ways that we tend to think about nations and religion and politics and, and so on. Um, when we get to the high Middle Ages, sort of, you know, 1,000 to 1,300, 1,400, um, you get the building of these great cathedrals, uh, kind of the gospel written in stone, if you will. Um, you get uh, universities, uh, Cambridge and Oxford. What do you mean by the gospel written in stone? Ah, so when you, if you've ever been to one of these cathedrals, you see, um, you see the stained glass windows, you see carvings and sculptures. A lot of people back then couldn't read or they couldn't read text, but they could read these images. They're like, oh, I, I know that this is an image of the Last Supper, or I know that this carving is uh, John the Baptist or whomever. And so the way that people learned about the gospel, or one of the ways that people learned about the gospel and Jesus and, and God was actually through architecture, which I think is really fascinating. And art. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you. So yeah, you've got universities, um, you have the beginnings of modern science um, uh, fostered by the church. So some people are believe in or are familiar with this narrative of a war between science and religion. Um, and basically that's mostly rubbish. Um, the church and science have actually been more often allied than opposed. But again, that's, a, that's, a, that's another tangent. Um, also, theologically, you start getting this increased focus on heaven and hell and judgment. Uh, if anybody is familiar with uh, like Dante's Inferno or Dante's Divine Comedy, like that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. And a lot of what we, a lot of what we tend to believe today about heaven and hell and judgment, actually stems out of that and things like Dante, which you know his Divine Comedy was a very powerful artistic rendering of the theology that was going on at the time. Um, now, one interesting thing to note is that the Catholic, you have in the West, you have the Roman Catholic Church, and it stays pretty unified through a combination of uh, founding different orders. So you don't have denominations splitting off, but you do have, you know, the Dominicans and Franciscans who stay united with the church, but have their own distinctives. Um, and then also um, alliances with various state powers to put down rebellions and heresies and so on. Um, and we kind of come to the end uh, of the High Middle Ages with the Black Death, which kills about a third of Europe and causes a whole bunch of societal changes and, and, and certain theological emphases and, and so on. But it's a it's a pretty big event. So with that, we've covered roughly 1,500 years of history. Uh, well done. Very, very concise and, and uh, very helpful. Um, 
So we're about to move into now the Reformation, and we're about to begin to look at, um, some people are familiar with Martin Luther. Um, in 1517, uh, he submitted his 95 theses to the church, um, questioning practices, uh, notably indulgences, and um, this uh, often is attributed to kicking off uh, a new era, the Reformation. Um, so, Craig, fill us in a little bit more on some of the broader subjects of what's happening in this season of church history. Right. So the Reformation is really important because it basically it's the split of that Latin Western church um, in the 16th century. On a, on a, theological, on a theological level, um, it was about the rejection of church tradition um, and appealing to scripture over that tradition, um, although that's even that is an oversimplification. You know, a lot of the reformers like Martin Luther or John Calvin, they knew it wasn't quite that simple. Um, and indeed, the Reformation as a whole was not even just a theological movement. It was also about political power and the growth of the nation state. Uh, I mean, you had in the, the wars of religion, wars of religion that followed, you had Protestants fighting Protestants and Catholics fighting Catholics, not just Catholics fighting Protestants. Um, and it wasn't a unified movement either. It was a collection of different theological and political movements that all kind of happened at the same time. And in the past, various combinations of church and state had been able to put those down. Um, and that didn't happen in this particular case. And as a result, what you see afterwards with uh, the, you know, the, the Peace of Westphalia and so on, is you see a shift of power away from the church uh, and getting concentrated more and more in the nation state. Um, now, starting around this time, you also um, get the spread of Christianity to the New World through colonization. And so you get missionaries, colonists, conquerors, um, all going for various different combinations of God, greed, and glory. Um, so it's, it's, it's really a, a, mixed, a mixed bag there. Uh, Bible translation and, you know, translating the Bible into the indigenous languages of the various uh, peoples that they're coming across uh, becomes a way to preserve local languages and local cultures. Um, but it is also at the same time uh, can, could be a way to destroy them. You know, Christianity was identified at that time with being European. And so some of the missionary work that went on was not just about converting people to Christianity, but turning them into Europeans, essentially. Um, now, during this time, you have Christianity respreading to East Asia. And I say respreading because, as we saw earlier, Christianity went to Asia earlier uh, and then kind of died back a bit. So you have that going on. Um, I want to uh, especially mention the case of Japan. Um, I, I lived there for a little while, and so it's, it's kind of near and dear to my heart. Um, so you have mission work in Japan that went very well for a while, and it seemed like it was Japan was going to become a Christian nation. Um, but the quarrels between Catholics and Protestants that had been going on in Europe also kind of got carried over into Japan. And eventually, as a result of that and other things, uh, Westerners were banished from Japan and Christianity was outlawed. Um, now, the interesting thing, though, is that uh, centuries later, when the ban was lifted, there were still underground communities of Christians that got that, that reemerged, essentially, which is which is absolutely fascinating. Um, but Moving on from that. Um, Craig, Craig, multiple times in church history, though, when the church is the most persecuted or in its, you know, in dire straits, you find some of the greatest strength as well. Is that is that true? Yes. Um, yes, I would say so. Um, it's I think you could say that the 
Christianity has often been at its worst when it's had power and been able to impose its will on people. And it's often been at its best when it's been powerless in terms of the normal power structures of society. Well put, yeah. So, um, now, during this time of colonization, you also see the reintroduction of slavery into Western society. Slavery had been a big part of Roman society when the church first started. Uh, it had died away in Europe for various political, sociological, and theological reasons. Um, but now slavery gets reintroduced, in particular, bringing slaves from Africa to the New World. And this process really lays bare the, um, the Eurocentrism of Christianity, the way that Europe, like Christianity and Europe were just identified with each other um, almost synonymously at the time. Uh, it really laid bare the, the racism uh, embedded in, in European Christian, Christian culture at the time um, and how Christianity had in some ways just become part of the culture. Um, and there's a, a really um, kind of hard but poignant example of this in that uh, in the new world in, I think it might've been in Virginia or what was to become the state of Virginia, um, there were a lot of concerns about whether or not slaves could be baptized. And a lot of the slave owners didn't want the slaves to be baptized because, or, or to become Christians, because they were worried that if they became Christians, then they would have to set, the slave owners would have to set their Christian slaves free. And basically the way that the various authorities got around that is they said, yeah, you can, you can, you can preach to them and you can convert them, um, but converted slaves don't have to go free. And this, so the slave owners like, great, we're fine, do whatever you want which is telling and kind of dark. Um, you know, there's a lot in this era and, and in this story um, that's pretty tragic right now, having to do with slavery, having to do with the confluence of colonization and missions um, and just the um, Western centric approach to Christianity that we see developing in this area. Um, or in this era, how do you see the effects of this era still affecting us today in the church? Right. Well, so there's a couple a couple different threads I think you can pull on. So, um, you know, Protestant, Protestantism began as an appeal to scripture over tradition. Um, during this period of colonization, you get to something called the Enlightenment, which is basically where people start appealing to reason to get rid of or a particular form of reason, a particular understanding of reason to get rid of both tradition and scripture. Um, and so you've got that, you get um, Protestantism produced these different rival interpretations of scripture and that keeps that fracturing process continues on. And so you get more and more different denominations and Christian groups with their own theological distinctives. Uh, many of those groups uh, end up fleeing to the U S which is part of why the U S has its, rather unique uh, religious culture. Um, you get pietism as a reaction against, uh, so, you know, focusing on private and personal faith as a reaction against the um, emphasis on doctrinal orthodoxy and, and kind of intellectual Christianity that you see in certain strands of Protestantism. Um, you also see the growth of fundamentalism as a reaction essentially to some of those enlightenment ideas um, that I mentioned earlier. So it's, it, we don't often think about it this way, but fundamentalism is actually a, a modern phenomenon. It's not, a, um, not an ancient one. It's, it's really just a reaction to the Enlightenment. Um, and I talked a little bit earlier about how kind of European identity and Christian identity got 
confused or merged in different ways. Um, I think you you really see that um, you see Christianity turned into kind of a subcomponent of national identity. Uh, if you look at the German and British propaganda around World War One, for example, they use you know crusading against the infidels kind of language, but against other Christian nations. Um, but you can see how essentially it's it's you know the nation and Christianity get really, really identified with each other. Um, and to the point where national loyalty becomes more important than, than Christian loyalty. Um, now with enlightenment, uh, to come back to that, you have this overthrow or, or supposed overthrow of tradition and scripture in favor of reason. Uh, but then along comes postmodernism and says, well, actually a pox on all of your reason. We can see it's really just your cultural imperialism and, and various things like that. Um, and so now reason kind of gets overthrown and all you're left with is sort of personal experience, uh, which fits into some parts of pietism, but, you know, comes with its own issues. Um, now, while all this is going on, um, in the early 20th century, you have the growth of Pentecostalism, um, especially in, in the global South, in Africa and, and Latin America. Uh, this is a renewed focus on the experience of God, on the Holy Spirit. Um, it grows very rapidly in, in Latin America and Africa. And you see Christianity as a whole over the 20th century growing in China and South Korea. I think South Korea goes from like one to 40% Christian in a, in a century. Um, and so most of Christianity today is actually not in Europe or North America. It's in Africa and South America and Asia. Yeah. Kind of like it was a thousand years ago or maybe 1500 years ago. Yeah, this is a really fascinating shift. Considering the story of most of the last 2000 years or or certainly the more recent years um, with the Crusades and the Western-centric uh, Christianity, that the center of gravity of Christendom is moving, uh, it has moved and is increasingly moving to the global South. And the question that this posed for me when I first came to realize this idea is, could, can we in the North, in North America, um, can we in Western Christendom learn to listen to the voice of Christianity born of the majority of Christianity in the global South? I think this is a really distinct challenge that we face um, in learning to listen to the voice of God as the global church. Yeah, I agree. All right. So have we covered generally the, the the at least the topics we chose to engage over the past 2000 years we, we did cover the whole 2000 years um but definitely from a, a 40,000 foot view as it were we did we did there's a lot more to dig into here and we'd encourage all of you to take some time to read and study and explore and watch other videos and find other ways to look at some of the nuances but based on what we've covered today um what are some of the primary lessons, Craig, that you think we might be able to learn? In the beginning, you said, well, there's been some terrible things. Let's not repeat those mistakes. And there's been some good things. What are some of the lessons that you think we can learn from church history? Well, I think the first thing to, to notice is that the church was ethnically and culturally diverse almost from the very beginning. Um, you know, Christianity has demonstrated an incredible power to become indigenous to a culture. It's um, is remarkably adaptable in that regard. And not only is it adaptable, but it's also the most durable when it's expressed and formulated in the language um, of the local culture. Um, North African Christianity is a great example. So during the Roman Empire, you know, North African Christianity was producing people like Augustine and Cyprian and Tertullian, like some, some really 
um, theological giants. But it was it was Latin. It was Roman. It wasn't. It hadn't indigenized to the local Berber culture. And so, um, after the the Muslim conquest of those areas, Christianity there basically died out. Um, now, Christianity can be a way to preserve local cultures, um, and I think the translation of the uh, Bible into Welsh as a way of actually preserving the Welsh language is a great example here. Um, but Christianity can also be taken over by local cultures. Um, you know, thinking about colonialism and, and kind of the Eurocentric approach to Christianity um, or the way in which racist beliefs um, kind of permeated a lot of the discussions about slavery and, and the Bible in um, the United States in the 1800s. Um, also, whenever we look at history, we always have to keep in mind that our categories our, way, our, our Western 21st century ways of thinking about the world and about Christianity don't always fit um, other cultures or other, other times and places um, in, in history. Um, secondly, Christianity has been both sustained and corrupted uh, by state power. So if you look at Europe, for example, one of the reasons Christianity survived in Europe was because it was allied with state power. Um, you know, compare it with the Coptic Christians in Egypt, you know, they weren't, and they're still there, but they're not nearly as, as numerous as, as European Christians were. Um, but you also had the compromises, um, as, as we've talked about already. Um, that kind of state power supported Christianity often spread through violence and cultural imperialism. Um, that being said, you can also see notable examples of the church countering or reforming state power. Uh, for example, if you look at the truce of God or the peace of God in the Middle Ages, um, that was a way that the church limited violence um, in that society. And just as an aside, when it comes to church history, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of misconceptions. Um, a lot of what people believe about the uh, Inquisition, for example, is the result of re of Protestant propaganda, essentially in the the 16th and 17th centuries about the Inquisition as opposed to actual facts about, about the Inquisition. Or you can take the Da Vinci Code, you know, it's, it's very entertaining, but as history, it's rubbish. Um, so there's, there's, there's two, there's, uh, you know, ethnically and culturally diverse, there's the sustained and corrupted by state power. Uh, and then thirdly, unity is hard. Um, you know, it's generally difficult. It's especially difficult for Protestants because of certain theological commitments that we had going all the way back to the Reformation. Um, and I think it's especially difficult for American Protestants because of the cultural assumptions and biases that are on top of and reinforcing um, Protestant and sometimes uniquely American theological commitments. Okay, so there's some things we can learn from church history. And typically we try to figure out, you know, as we're preaching, as we're in Bible classes, what's the application? What can I take away from this? And you and I had some conversation about this this week. Like, what do you take away from a story that's this broad on, um, on church history? Well, th the first thing that we came up with is that we as uh, participants in Western Christendom, as we as American Christians need to realize that the Christianity that we are experiencing right now is both historically and culturally conditioned. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I, I hope has become clear throughout telling this narrative is that American Christianity is one small part yeah. of church history. Um, there are other ways to be Christian. There are other ways that people have been Christian. And 
those other ways may actually be better, at least in certain regards, uh, than the ways that we do Christianity um, here in the United States. And for that reason, Craig, I think we need to be willing to question our cultural biases and our assumptions. We need to realize that the story of Christianity and what we're talking about today, the mission of God, um, it's much broader than the biases and assumptions that we bring to the table. Absolutely. Um, I, I like to be a bit provocative sometimes, and so let me do that here. You know, if, if you are a 21st century American reading the Bible, your reading of the Bible is, on balance, just as historically and culturally conditioned as that of a 10th century Catholic monk. Um, the difference might be that the monk understands that he's part of a tradition in history and many Americans don't. But like, that's a, I think that's a helpful way to think about it. Um, again, to come back to the example of slavery, the historical discussions about slavery show just how deeply racism, you know, cultural, culturally embedded beliefs, um, just how deeply those can color what people think is the quote unquote plain reading of scripture. Um, and what you think you know about history um, may also just affect the way that you think now. Um, but what you think about history, about, you know, about Protestantism or U.S. history or slavery or what have you, um, may not be entirely accurate. Now, that could raise in us a little bit of fear or frustration, um, uh, kind of put us back on our heels feeling defensive to say that maybe our preconceived notions and our way of doing things aren't the best or only way to do them. Any advice for us as we, as we start to close out today? Well, the... I think the most common command in scripture is not to be afraid. And I think that is, that's where we need to start when it comes to all of this, you know, don't be afraid of, of somebody saying that history somehow disproves Christianity because it, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Um, don't be afraid of cultural change. You know, Christianity has shown incredible versatility in adapting to different cultures throughout history. Um, it can handle our cultural changes. Um, and then thirdly, don't be afraid of being powerless. Um, as I said before, the church is often at its best. It's often most like Jesus when it can't just enforce its will um, on the people uh, around them. So, yeah, don't be afraid. That's rich. Craig, thank you so much. So in this series, we've been trying to piece together and understand a common thread, a biblical narrative that describes a God of mission. And as we looked at the nation of Israel, and as we looked at the first century church, and now we've looked at the global church over the course of the past 2000 years, again, we're asking, so what is happening in the story of the mission of God? And in fact, Craig, we're going to launch um, a study here in next or this Sunday um, that talks about the five act play. Is that correct? Do you want to mention it real quick? Yeah, sure. Um, so one of the ways that I have found most helpful for understanding and reading scripture is to think of it uh, as a play in five acts. You have uh, creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, and the church. And the Bible gives us the first four acts, the first scene and the last scene of act five. Um, and so we're essentially just going to be doing an overview of that um, in over those uh, couple weeks. All right. Thank you. So this is the story that we've been adopted into. 
the story of a God of mission and the story of the God of God working through the Israelite nation, through the church to bring about healing and restoration in this world. Craig, appreciate your perspective and helping us through uh, an understanding of what's happened in church history and how that might inform who we are today and how we will move forward in the future. Let's pray as we close out. God, we thank you for this day and this time. We thank you for an opportunity to have this conversation uh, and pray your blessing on um, uh, your followers today as we explore the ideas of what has been, what has brought us to where we are today. God, we pray that you will lead us as we go forward. Uh, Spirit, that you will work powerfully um, to invite us to walk in step with you. God, that, that we um, have opportunity to participate in your mission in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We hope you have a blessed week. Bye, everyone.